Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com, the number one adult toy superstore on the internet, and then when you're at the checkout, enter the offer code TMPP. That's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, and you'll receive 50% off. So go to adamandeve.com and enter the offer code TMPP. Once again, that's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. In my first semester of college, I had a roommate named Ken, who had been born and raised in Queens, so he had the accent, but his brother lived down here in Fort Lauderdale, in an apartment that was decked out with all varieties of gaming equipment. He had those the special chairs and the speakers and the big TV and like all the major consoles from the time. And since Ken, a, a portly kid with big hair and a kind of corkscrew accent, Ken... Ken didn't have much of a social life down here on campus, so he would pack up his things every Friday afternoon, and he would drive over to his brother's place in Fort Lauderdale, and he would stay there over the entire weekend. And usually, more often than not, he would come back on Monday morning instead of uh, Sunday night. And when I say that he was my roommate, I don't mean sweet mate, like we had different bedrooms. I mean, we lived in the same bedroom. And since... Again, he didn't have much of a social life. Um, the, the way that Ken's schedule worked was he would go to class, which he didn't really care about. He was only in college because his dad forced him to be there. So he would go to class, and then he would leave, usually in the middle of the lecture, and he would go to the food court. And then he would come back to our room with a giant sandwich from Subway. Our beds were set really high off the ground, like a little over waist height if you were standing. And Ken never dressed his bed in sheets or a comforter, so it was always just this bare blue water-resistant mattress, a table, essentially, and that's how he used it. So he would, he would pull up his chair to the mattress, and he would lay out his food on the, on, on the blue plastic material, and he would eat that sandwich while playing PlayStation. And he ate so fucking loudly. It was, it was the mastication, it was moans, it was... And apart from just, like, the sensual reactions that he was having, the guttural reactions, there would be commentary, a running thing. Like, there was this time he, he was eating, and I was at my desk on the other side of the room, and he goes, Alex, come over here, come over here. And I said, Ken, what is it? And he'd say, you gotta see this. I'm not kidding. You gotta, you gotta look at it. Just, just come over here, look at this. So I'd get up, and I would turn around, and I would go across the room, and I'd say, okay, what do you want to show me? And he would look up at me, and he would hold eye contact for what felt like a profound five seconds, and then he would make a stabbing presentational gesture in the direction of his half-eaten sandwich, and he would say, can you believe the size of this thing? Look at this. It's incredible. I don't even know if I can eat the whole thing. And I would say, yeah, Ken, it's a big sandwich. Is that is that it? Is that all you wanted? And he would shrug, and he'd, he'd use each of his palms to brush crumbs from the other one, and then, turning back to his video games and his, his sandwich, he'd say, yeah, no, I just wanted you to see the size of this thing in case, you you know, someday maybe on campus you want to get a sandwich from there. You want to see what it looks like. You know, this is what it looks like. It's real good. Ken was the only student I knew on campus who carried a briefcase instead of a backpack. Living in the freshman dorm, there was only a single kitchen on each floor. Uh, we all had So we all had to buy meal plans that would give us access to the cafeteria. And since Ken and I both had one of these meal plans, and since neither of us knew anybody else on campus... I asked him on the first night that I had moved in if he would like to go and get dinner at the cafeteria together. And, and he said, sure. And so we, we make our way downstairs, and I notice that he brings his suitcase, which, this being the Saturday night before the semester has begun, it, it, it seemed a little strange. I didn't understand why, but whatever. 
it's fine. I'm, I'm trying to make friends. Why bring it up? So we go to the cafeteria, and um, what Bear's mentioning is that when you would sign in at the cafeteria, you had to swipe your student ID on a computer, and the lady at the front desk would ask you if you were going to dine in at the cafeteria or if you wanted a to-go container. And you could only you could only do one of the two. So if you got a to-go container, you could you were only allowed to be in the cafeteria for 15 minutes in order to fill it up, and then you could leave. Or, but if you were dining in, you could dine in. You could be there for 12 hours. It didn't matter. But so Ken and I, we, we sign into the cafeteria, and she says, okay, do you want a to-go box, or are you guys trying to dine in? And, and we chose to dine in because we wanted to sit around and gorge ourselves and get to know each other. And after that, we, we wander around the cafeteria for a little while uh, to the different food stations, and we fill our plates, and then we reconvene at a corner table, and we start talking, and we start eating. And we're eating like teenagers, plate after plate after bowl after bowl. And Ken, he's eating a lot more, a lot more. And he's really enthused and he's making all these, all these gestures as he talks. And he's scooping up cereal with one hand and eating a sandwich with the other. And he would do this annoying shit. Like he would ask, and I swear, this started on day one and it persisted through the entire semester. He would ask me if I'd ever been to New York. And then I would say no. And then he'd say, oh, Alex, you gotta go to New York. You gotta go. You, you just gotta go. The pizza there is so good. It's the best pizza in the world, hands down. And then he would gesture at the pizza that he had just gotten from the pizza window, the pizza that's sitting on his plate. And he'd say, you see this? This isn't pizza. This is bread. It's bread with shit on it. Real pizza is in New York. There's no place like it. You got, have, have you ever had pizza from New York? And I would say, Ken, I just told you I've never been to New York in my life. How would I have eaten a slice of pizza from New York if I've never been there? And he would pop his shoulder and he would chuckle and he would dip his head to the side chewing. And he'd say, I don't know, maybe, maybe he had it flown in or something. And I really, I would really want to pursue these lines of argument when they came up and just and be like, Ken, what do you, who do you think I am that I'm, I'm, I'm flying a pizza pie from across the country? But again, we've just met. And so I smile and I nod and I smile and I nod. And as he proceeds to ask me if I've ever been to Central Park or if I've ever been to the MoMA um, or any other place in New York, I just tell him, no, I haven't been there yet. No, I haven't. Finally, we finish our meal. I'm, I'm patting my stomach and making remarks about how full I am, how ready I am to get back to the room. And Ken, he just nods. He looks around the cafeteria. He looks, in particular, up to the front entrance, toward the woman who signed us in. The woman who is turning around from the cash register every few minutes to make sure that the people who chose to get to-go boxes aren't secretly hanging around and dining in. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go back to the room, Ken says. Just give me like five minutes, just five minutes. And then, still watching the old lady at the front of the cafeteria, Ken leans over... He opens his briefcase, and I see that there are no books inside, no papers, no folders, nothing remotely academic. He reaches into his briefcase, and he pulls out a styrofoam container that he got from here, from the cafeteria, yesterday, before I moved in, when he came in for a to-go dinner. And now he's back to fill it again after our enormous meal. And I'm nervous about this because I just, I just moved in here, and I was like, wait, don't, are you... What are you doing? And he, and he looks to me, gives me this incredulous look like I'm a pussy, and he's like, nah, I'm just going to get a little more food for later. And I said, dude, the semester has not even started. If she sees you, if you if you get us fucking kicked out of here, like, on, on the Saturday before anything starts, and he just, he like coos at me. He's like, she's not going to see you, don't worry. He's all swaggy and shit, and he start, stands up, and he's like popping his shoulders and his belly hanging pendulous over his belt line. But then, once it's finally time for him to go through with his little heist, 
Ken proceeds to move through the cafeteria like the Hamburglar. He's mincing around on his tiptoes. He's he's scrambling to pack his container full of pizza at one window, and then cookies in the next, and then chili. He ladles chili over the pizza and the cookies, and then he throws some rice in there. Two big scoops of rice, brown rice, of course, which is prudent, naturally. He's watching his figure. And meanwhile, his head is, like, swiveling around like a pigeon, and so everybody's looking at him as he's doing this. He's he's moving around like if you had just, if you had tricked a child into believing he was invisible. Now, Ken did not get caught that night, fortunately, but I was super pissed, and I didn't say anything to him on the way back to the dorm, the long, long walk back to our room, throughout which, incidentally, with his briefcase tucked under his arm, Ken ate two or three more slices of wet, flaccid pizza. Now, all that aside, Ken was a really nice guy, but he annoyed the shit out of me, which isn't really an indictment of anybody, because I'm a very moody person, and I know I'm not a walk in the park to deal with, so I want to be quick to make the distinction that he was annoying as fuck, but it was not his fault. He was just eccentric, crushingly eccentric. And one of the ways that his eccentricity manifested was in this obsession that he had with Guitar Hero. Now, this was back in the fall of 2009, so I don't know which number in the series that they were up to, but I remember that he didn't just have the guitar, he had the mic on, on an adjustable stand, and he had the guitar, and he had the drum set. So he would play the guitar, and it'd be clack, 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 clacking, and then he would sing into the microphone. Or, or he would be playing the drums, and he would sing into the microphone. And yes, I will, I will admit that he was very good at Guitar Hero, and he was very proud about how good he was. <laughs> but this man could not sing. And it wasn't just that he was he was screaming along with his winded New York accent to Billy Idol's White Wedding and, and shit from Nirvana. This version of Guitar Hero was for some reason endowed with songs that had been sung by SpongeBob SquarePants. And then there was some rock and roll American anthem that was sung by Stephen Colbert because this was like the peak of the Colbert Report at the time. So I would be at my desk writing angsty fiction at 11.30 on a Tuesday night. And this, and fucking Ken behind me, would be chewing on stolen pizza, shredding on his plastic guitar, and to top it all off, there would be the, the scrotum-tightening wail of SpongeBob SquarePants singing some made-up rock song. It was fucking awful. It was fucking awful. But the dude was so clearly lonely, and it was obvious by the third week of classes that college was, like, not working out for him, and so I didn't want to be the voice in his safe space telling him, like, hey, Garth, pack it in. But he and I would go, and we would have like a two-hour dinner in the dining hall. And then, you know, at the end of the meal, he would stretch his arms out at his side like it was, you know, like it was the end of a long work day. And he'd be like, all right, I got to go back to the room. I got to practice. And as the semester wore on, we got a little chummier. I would point out, like, Ken, I have never seen you study. And he would say, that's bullshit. I study all the time. And I would say, no, you don't. You, you eat stolen pizza and you hump that little plastic guitar until dawn. You're like, you're like an autistic Dracula. Don't trick yourself into believing that you're doing something productive in front of the PlayStation, because you're not. But I tried not to press it. I would only go that route in conversation when I was in a bad mood. I tried not to press it because this is, this is who he was. These were his priorities. He never studied. He never did his assignments. The only thing that Ken ever did with, any, with, with a modicum of passion or resolve was <laughs> eat floppy pizza and play Guitar Hero. One week, toward the end of the semester, it's like a Tuesday or a Wednesday afternoon, I'm sitting at my desk, and I've got my back to the door, and Ken comes crashing through it. He's panting, he's heaving, he's, he's drenched in sweat. I turn around and I look at him there in the doorway, and he looks at me, and his chest is heaving, and his shoulders are bouncing. 
And then he hoists up his briefcase and he hurls it across the room and it's leather. So it like slaps the wall with this hideous flesh noise and, and it lands on the floor. And then we just sit there and the sound, like the only sound in, in, the, in the apartment is his breathing. And I say, is something wrong? He, Ken, Ken had just checked his grades for the first time in the semester. And I said, okay, so what, what's the verdict? And he's panting through his nose and he squints at me. And then he raises a hand high over his head. And he karate chops it down through the air. And he shouts, I'm failing! I'm failing everything! (laughs) And then he shakes his head and he walks toward the far wall of the room. His fists are balled at his sides. And then he starts pacing back and forth and back and forth. And he goes, that's it. Fuck it. I'm dropping out. I'm quitting college. I don't care what my dad says. I didn't think it was a good idea for him to drop out of college personally, but I also thought it might be neat if he did quit school, because then maybe I would get a cooler roommate, you know, like a, like a deaf kid or a spider. And he goes, this is bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. And I ask him if he's talked with his professors yet. And he says, you can't talk to these people. You know how it is. And I shrug, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I talk to my professors. And he shakes his head. You can't. It's impossible. And he huffs and huffs, and he rants for a while. And eventually, all on his own, Ken begins to calm down. And he sits on his mattress... And he shakes his head, and he takes a deep breath, and he says, I think I'm going to go get a sandwich. You want to come with me? A couple days after that, it's Friday afternoon. He's packed his things. He's, he's getting ready to go visit with his brother in Fort Lauderdale for a, a marathon weekend of gaming. And I say, this is good. You'll, you'll decompress. You can email your professors, reassess the whole situation. And Ken nods. And, and I can tell there's a lot on his mind, but we part ways with, you know, kind of a bro-type hug. Because we, we had, at this point, gotten pretty chummy. And, and he goes off with this resolve to sort of clear his head, whatever. So now I've got the dorm to myself for the weekend, and so I, I sit around in my underwear, and, and I watch porn with the volume way up for a couple of days. And then, Monday morning, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk with my back to the door, and I hear Ken fumbling with the lock. And I turn around as the door swings open, and there he is. And he's got some stubble on his face, which isn't, isn't usual, and his hair looks a little more disheveled than usual, but otherwise he looks pretty much the same, except something is different. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I keep looking at him, and I can't put my finger on what's different. And I don't want to risk drawing attention to something that's maybe supposed to be discreet, and, and so we just say our hellos, and, and we catch up a little bit, we talk about what we did over the weekend, and I, I ask him, you know, uh, did you did you get a chance to speak to your professors? And it turns out that he did not speak to his professors, that he just spent the entire weekend playing video games, but nonetheless, he nods in this encouraged way, and he says that, you know, having spent the whole weekend thinking about it, you know, he feels he feels rejuvenated, he feels like he can he can pull his grades together now. And he, and he goes on to tell me about what exactly he did that weekend, what he played, what he ate, but I keep losing focus because I just keep looking at him up and down and, and side to side and trying to figure out what the fuck is different. I ask him, I ask him if he got a haircut and he says, nah, I didn't get a haircut. I said, did you, are these new clothes? I keep kind of pestering him with question after question. And he's like, nah, man, you see me like, you see me wear these clothes a million times. Is something going on with you? And I said, I don't know what it is, man. There's something different about you. And then he smiles in a way that was almost conspiratorial because it was clearly a satisfied smile. It was clear that he had made some kind of change to his appearance. I was picking up on it, and he was glad to see that I was picking up on the change. Whatever the fuck that change was, he was he was just pleased to see that there was some kind of effect. And yet, he just, he lied about it, and he just shook his head, and he sat down in front of his mattress, and he opened his laptop, and he told me, you're weird, you're a weird guy. For the rest of the day, whenever we crossed paths on either side of our classes, I would I would see him and I would squint at him from like different distances. It was driving me crazy because it was it was clear that something was radically different about his appearance and I could not figure out what it was. Eventually, I ask him if he wants to get dinner at around 8 o'clock and he says no, which is kind of weird because Ken 
is always in the mood for dinner. If you took Ken out for dinner and then you went to see a movie with him and then after the movie you said, hey, Ken, how about some dinner? Ken would say yes. So I go to dinner by myself. I do some studying in the student union and then I go back to my dorm at around 11. And there he is sitting in front of his TV. He's playing Guitar Hero. And I, I go to my desk. I start browsing the internet. And while I'm reading about books or movies or whatever, he's, he goes on playing Guitar Hero song after song. And I, and I come to find that I'm just I'm celebrating those little moments of silence between the songs, when he isn't jamming away on his plastic toy and singing along with Spongebob. He just plays song after song after song, and then eventually, in one of those peaceful little silences between them, Ken goes, man, let me tell you, this game wears me out. I am so tired. And then I hear this apocalyptic tearing noise just shredding the silence, and I jump up in my seat, and shit goes flying off my desk, and I spin around with my arms up, thinking something's about to fly at me from across the room. But it's just Ken. He's standing in front of the TV, his t-shirt is pulled up to his nipples, and he's struggling to unstrap a gigantic, glinting, silver girdle from around his midsection. And I realized suddenly that this is what had been so different. It, it looked from the moment he walked in like he had lost 20 pounds over the course of the weekend. He unstraps the girdle, and when his belly punches forth into the room like a third roommate, he gets this, this dazed, double-blinking look to his face like he just had an orgasm. And I'm thinking, this is what was different. Why Why did he not tell me he was wearing a fucking girdle all this time that I was saying something's different, something's different? And then I realized it wasn't really my business and it might just make him uncomfortable if I brought it up. So I didn't. Later that week, while he was out eating or at class or something, the RA came knocking on my door and she said that she wanted to talk to me. So she came in, we sat on my bed, and she showed me some papers and gave me a little talking to. Turns out that Ken, without telling me, had decided that he was going to move out at the end of the fall semester. My RA wanted me to know that I would be getting a new roommate in the spring and that I might want to help my current roommate get his things together in the interim. When I talked with Ken about it later that evening, expressing some remorse at the idea that he wasn't going to be around in the spring, he said that, you know, the, the commute from Fort Lauderdale isn't that bad and, and he has such a great time spending weekends up there with his brother, it, it would just be the wisest move for him financially to, to go and live with his brother. And so I said, cool, that's fine, and you know, I'm sorry to see you go, but I'm around if you need any help moving, whatever. And then I asked him if this had anything to do with his grades, um, or if they were improving at all, and I don't remember exactly what he revealed to me, but I do remember walking away from that conversation and heading to a friend's dorm and telling her he's going to drop out. And by the end of the following year, that is exactly what he did. We recently hired a new bartender at the restaurant where I work. 
He's in his 40s, and he's been in the business since 1997, when he was pulling beer at the Fuddruckers in Coconut Grove. This new guy is really cool, really friendly. His name is Greg, and he's what you would call a career bartender, capital C, capital B. And if this is the sort of thing that you care about, you would be led to agree that a career bartender is a very rare, very good thing. You see, most bartenders are only pouring drinks part-time, whether they're doing it to get themselves through school, or maybe they've got some good side hustle that's eventually going to become their primary source of income, and so they're only bartending for now, you know, so they can sort of subsidize the experiment. For most of the bartenders that serve you, their job behind the counter has nothing to do with their identity. Now sometimes, like so many of us, your bartender is lying to himself when he says that this job is just a placeholder while they pursue something more entrepreneurial, something more socially astute, like real estate or, or computer coding or interior design. Sometimes it's just clear as can be that this person is going to be a bartender for the rest of their life. And yet, that does not make them a career bartender. And I know that might sound counterintuitive, but it's true. Just because a person is destined to remain behind a bar for the entirety of their career doesn't make them a career bartender. Because the thing that distinguishes a casual bartender from a career bartender is that the career bartender prepares your drink in such a way as to be proud of the final product. A casual bartender isn't too concerned if your cocktail is a little light or a little heavy on the pour. They're not too concerned if the head of your beer is as high or as low as it ought to be. The casual bartender is less concerned with the quality of your drink than they are with the simple task of getting your drink made and getting it into your hand. And at most places, this is perfectly fine. Most people don't go to a bar looking for bells and whistles on the experience. All they want is some alcohol to unwind with while sitting in a cozy place with a friendly bartender. Now, a career bartender, on the other hand, knows that it isn't the most esteeming thing in the world to identify professionally as a bartender. And thus, lacking the accolades of his community, the career bartender finds ways of taking pride in his own work. The career bartender knows that he isn't going to get written up in the newspaper for saving lives, nobody's going to say that they loved his last movie, nobody's going to stop him on the sidewalk and thank him for his service. So if he's not going to get accolades from the crowd, he has to be able to get accolades from himself. So the drink that you get from a career bartender is almost always going to be just right. The career bartender is going to give you exactly what you paid for. Anyway, so this guy, Greg, who starts working at the restaurant with me is a career bartender. And it was clear from the first day on the job that he was taking it very seriously. I probably shouldn't be revealing this, but there's a colleague of mine who sometimes, on his way out the door, will grab one of our plastic cups and he'll slide it to a bartender and he'll get himself a tall cup of beer for his long walk home. One day, during Greg's first week on the job, that other colleague came up to me at the end of his shift and he said, do you think the new guy will fill a cup of beer that I can take home? And I shook my head and I told him, nah, look at, I don't think so, because look at how he's doing everything so systematically. He's moving around so smooth and robotic. He's like studying the screen and, and making sure he hits every button very deliberately when he places an order. I, he just, he looks like a rules guy. And it turns out that Greg is a rules guy. You'll find that folks who take pride in their work, any kind of work, they tend to see the rules of their profession as the boundaries by which they can measure their skill. Look at basketball, for example. A basketball player isn't judged on how accurately and consistently he can shoot a ball through a hoop. What he's measured on, rather, is how accurately and consistently he can shoot a ball through a hoop within the lines of the court and against the advances of his opponent, how he shoots baskets within the boundaries of the paint and the rules. So this new guy, Greg, a career bartender by trade, is very definitely, almost by definition, a rules guy. But he's also playful. And I start to notice over the next few days that once he gets himself settled into the new bar, once he's, once he's got a grip on the hows and the whys of it, suddenly he starts laughing a lot. So he's a rules guy, but he's not uptight. 
One day I was watching him shake up a cocktail, and when it was done, and he poured it into the glass, it had the most photogenic, crystalline head of bubbles at the top. It wasn't head like you would call it like on a beer. It was just this froth of bubbles. And I told him that it looked really impressive, and I asked what makes it look that way, and he said, the ice. And I laughed because I, it sounded so obvious and plain that I figured it was a joke I didn't understand, but he followed through with a straight face, and he said, if you make this drink without ice, it doesn't get bubbles. And he said, something we often don't take into consideration is the fact that the ice itself is an ingredient. The ice or a splash of water that you put in a neat glass of scotch, they're small and plain and they seem like they don't matter, but they do. He told me recently that as much as he loves his line of work and as much as he takes pride in his performance, he is in his early 40s. And he's starting to wonder how many more years he can do this. He's on his feet 10 hours a day. He's tossing bottles and hoisting bins and, and shaking cocktails. He's driving home at midnight, eating dinner at 1 in the morning, falling asleep at 2. He's far from old, he says, but he might be getting too old for this. Then, a few nights ago, the restaurant was dead because of the coronavirus scare. And we were talking shit, and Greg says, you know, I'm not supposed to be talking about this, but I just got an offer to be a bar manager at this place down the street. It's a whiskey bar that he's talking about. They're opening a new location, he says. And the bar manager at the current location, this place that's just down the street, he's making 90 grand. He gives me this defeated shrug and says, I can't say no to 90 grand. A couple shifts prior to this one, Greg had spoken to me wistfully about the time that he was earning $60,000 while bartending at the TGI Fridays across from University of Miami, which makes me think that now, while tending bar in his 40s at a considerably nicer restaurant, he's, he seems to be earning less than he did while he was slinging PBR to college kids. So yeah, he's 40 years old, he's been doing this a long time, he's feeling aches like he's never felt before, he, he's, and he's probably thinking too about marriage and about retirement, so it makes sense what he's saying. $90,000 in his situation is an offer he can't refuse. It's time for the quote of the week! Today's bit of wisdom comes from a new book that was just released last week called Broken by Don Winslow. Highly recommended by yours truly if you're into thrillers and cop dramas and things like that. In Broken, we've got an older character at one point. She's the daughter of a compulsive gambler who recounts how her mom once told her that if you should ever in your life come upon some money that you didn't rightly earn and then you lose that money, don't ever spend the money that you did earn trying to get back the money that you didn't because you never do catch it, she says. You never get it back. And for this, and other bits of wisdom that Mr. Winslow regularly dispenses, we raise our glasses. Cheers! I was listening to a keynote lecture from the writer Ray Bradbury a few days ago. It was recorded in 2001, when Bradbury was already in his 80s, but, but he was still sharp and witty. Um, but there's a part in the lecture where he's talking about getting married very young, and about how his wife took a vow of poverty when she married him. He tells us that they had something like $80 in the bank when they tied the knot, and then shortly after that, there were kids that needed to be taken care of, and they got a house. He doesn't, he doesn't go too much into it here, but it's easy to deduce that Ray Bradbury wound up making pretty good money over the course of his career, especially with all the scripts he wrote for TV and for Hollywood. But when he describes those economic circumstances behind his, his marriage at the age of 22 or whatever it was, when he's describing how he and his wife had hardly a few dollars to their name and no real prospects for steady income except for his career as a fledgling story writer, yeah, it, it, it does seem like his wife would have had to take 
a vow of poverty because they could just as well have gone living the rest of their life exactly that way. Scrounging for money, taking odd jobs here and there, just hoping day after day that this story will get published or this story will get published. And it makes you think, she must have really fucking liked him because she sure is, she obviously, she clearly did not marry him for his money. 22-year-old Ray Bradbury must have been charming and friendly and funny as fuck. Either that or he had a huge dick and he knew how to use it. And if you thought for a moment that there would be no digression into, you know, the length, girth, color, vascularity, and general versatility of Ray Bradbury's gargantuan Martian cock while well, you're listening to the wrong show, because you see, Ray Bradbury was born in 1930, which means he grew up in a time of, you know, communal American Depression-era hardship. When you're bored and you haven't got much money to go out and enjoy yourself, it makes sense that you would stay in and enjoy yourself. And when you're trying to enjoy yourself within the confines of your home, it makes sense, too, that you're gonna fuck. You're gonna fuck a lot. And when you're having a lot of sex with the same person and the sex begins to turn mundane and to lose its luster, well, you begin to innovate. Necessity breeds innovation or whatever the quote says. And so, in the same way that a chef with very few resources will find a way to make every part of a chicken into something appetizing, like, you know, not just the breast and the legs of the chicken, but also like its hooves and its tails and its toes, it's in that same vein of Depression-era culinary innovation that we find its unique brand of coital innovation, whereby a citizen confined to one single partner in one single space will find ways to engage him or herself with every inch of that partner, to find something erotic about sort of the, you know, the chin and the earlobe, the left margin of the nipple. You start trying new positions. You bring logs and you know, little strips of velvet into the bedroom. I'm talking about that kinky depression era economic hardship sex. Then came the war. Nothing arouses a fervor of erotic innovation like the specter of nuclear holocaust. Mutually assured destruction indeed. Also, just look at the scope of imagination that Bradbury was able to demonstrate on the page. You think he didn't put that shit to work in the bedroom? It hardly takes Sherlockian powers of deduction to conclude that Ray Bradbury was a fiendishly kinky sexual dynamo. That the author of such literary staples as Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles could have blown out a plate glass window with the velocity of his third consecutive orgasm on a given day. That Bradbury's novel, Something Wicked This way comes was a reference not to Macbeth, but to the author's own conflicted relationship with his own genitals and their capacity for both love and destruction. But if we could get away from Ray Bradbury's penis for just a moment, as few people have been able to do, I want to go back to his wife's alleged vow of poverty and the fact that I myself have recently come to the conclusion that I will not go for an office job to subsidize my writing, that I will never in my professional life pursue any line of work that commands a great deal of intellectual firepower, anything that burns up the, the brain fuel that might otherwise be applied to my writing. No office jobs for Alex. I'll never work in finance, I'll never work in PR, I will, I, I, I'll never teach at a high school. For me, it is creative living. Creative living or bust. As a 28-year-old busboy and college tutor, I work roughly 50 hours a week, and I earn roughly $2,100 a month, give or take. And while it's not the sort of income on which I can build, you know, the kind of life into which I see my peers settling down and getting their shit together, and buying homes and traveling and, and climbing the ranks of their various professions. Still, I'm not the least bit bummed to find that those luxuries exist way beyond the little circle of my reach. And the reason I'm not really all that bothered is because I'm doing what I want to do. I go to my two jobs, I do what I'm told, and then I go home. And I write, or I watch movies, or I read, or I sit at Red Bar, or American Social, and I talk shit with the bartenders for a couple of hours. This is the life that I want. For now, at least. But the lack of money does have its obvious downsides. 
frankly, I don't even think I earn enough money to be in a relationship. And not because I'm like stridently beholden to these old school ideas of chivalry, where like you know, I've got to I've got to pick up every tab and I have to supply, but you know, a biweekly gift. It's nothing like that. I mean, I mean, I do insist on picking up the tab for the first few dates, and and it's true that my relationships seldom survive beyond those first few dates. But my point is that I don't see relationships as being necessarily expensive. I don't feel like I have to purchase my companion's affection, but the money thing is still a problem. To give you an idea of, of what I mean, um, a few weeks ago, I was spending a lot of time with an ex of mine. Her name is Elle, and the last time we hung out was, I think, like seven Thursdays ago. It was it was the eve of my payday. I had negative $7 in my checking account. I had a maxed out credit card, nothing in my savings, no cash in my wallet, no food in my fridge except for a single Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now I was gonna get a little over a thousand dollars at midnight. So I was I was, you know, picking her up late in the evening and, and I was telling her like I'll be able to get like a lavish breakfast in the morning. It wasn't like she was joining me in, in abject destitution, but she was gonna be coming over and spending the night at a point when I had literally run completely out of resources at the very end of my pay period. I was even low on gas when I picked her up from her house on my way home from work. Fortunately, the gas in my tank shuttled us to my apartment with twenty odd miles to spare. And when we got upstairs to my room, I was able to pour her some wine that I stole from my roommate's bottle. And, you know, I was able to talk to her and provide this place of privacy where we could hang out. But I was other I, otherwise, I, I was not able to offer her anything. I couldn't take her anywhere. I couldn't feed her. I couldn't, I didn't have the money or resources to be a proper host. And she kept trying to tell me, like, it's fine. I don't care. Stop bringing up the money issue. And what I was struggling to communicate, and I don't think I was able to communicate, is like, I appreciate that you don't mind that I can't provide things, but I mind that I can't provide things. My point is that despite these pretty dim financial circumstances, I am happy, maybe happier than I've ever been, because I have the freedom to write my fiction, the blog posts, to record things and to read. I have the luxury of always being on, creatively speaking. If I'm performing a certain task at either of my two jobs and my mind should begin to wander toward any of the creative projects that are on my plate at the moment, or, or toward some personal issue that I'll end up writing about, or if I should be at either of those two jobs and find myself wandering in thought, once again, to the magisterial tumescence of Martian chronicler Ray Bradbury. It doesn't matter at all that my mind has begun to wander, because both jobs are perfectly mindless. I go through both of them on blissful autopilot, with neither of them demanding of me anything that can't be done with, with just the tiny part of my brain that dangles in the back of my throat. The thing that I like to do in my life more than anything else is write, and in my head, I'm always doing it. Now, the price I pay for that privilege is that I live in a sketchy area of town and I eat ramen noodles or in white rice for dinner at least four nights a week, and there are days like that Thursday in question where food is just not in the picture. But I shit you not, this does not bother me at all. Or so I thought. Until something happened at the restaurant the other day that kind of fucked with me. So it's a Saturday night at the restaurant, it's the busiest night of the week, and the story I'm about to tell you took place before the pandemic, obviously. So people are still going out and doing shit and enjoying themselves. I was hired to work two different positions on alternating nights, but tonight I'm working as what my restaurant calls a server assistant, and what everyone else on earth calls a busboy. And one of my tasks as a busboy, probably the principal task alongside of cleaning and resetting tables, is to make sure that every guest's water glass is full. So I'm constantly wafting around the restaurant with a pitcher in my hand, you know, reaching across tables and pouring, and reaching across tables and pouring. And this Saturday night is going along pretty nicely. But at around 9 o'clock, we get a party of 10 people. 
They trickle into the restaurant two at a time. All of them are couples, and each one is carrying their own bottle of red wine. At this restaurant, it costs $40 to uncork your own bottle, but as you can gather from their banter, they've all agreed that this is well worth the expense. And as they arrive, two by two by two, I do my laps around the very long table with my pitcher in hand, and I pour them each a glass of water. Now, once all ten guests are here, I realize that they're all a little younger than I am. One guy toward the head of the table is probably my age or a little bit older. But yeah, no, these these five men and five women, all of them well-dressed and made up and, and toting top-of-the-line phones and bags, they are all about my age. But so again, they're coming into the restaurant two at a time, two at a time. The manager is coming up to their table with his wine key and popping open the bottles that they've brought. And meanwhile, I circle the table, my pitcher in hand, and I pour them water, and I pour them water. I've noticed that some people drink lots of water, and they drink it with a quickness that's almost urgent, despite showing no real signs of thirst or ever getting up to pee. And these financially well-off young people at this table of ten appear to be drinkers of that camp. And so I was constantly over at their table, constantly pouring them water, and while circling the table with my pitcher again and again, I would hear snippets of conversation about, for example, how this one guy at seat number five, he was so stoned a few nights ago that he just passed out on the couch where he was watching Netflix and, you know, woke up the next morning with his mouth feeling horrible. Anyways, and then he, so he's doing his riff, and then over at position eight, I hear a woman's mesmerized description of this, you know, tiny, tiny country that she was about to be visiting for vacation. And then, small world, the man across from her, who was apparently not her significant other, mentioned that the hedge fund that he works for, that hedge fund has some sort of iron in the financial fire over in that tiny, tiny country. And when she hears this, the woman says, oh my god, you don't say. And they all start conferring about hedge funds and their exotic vacations. And meanwhile, I'm walking around the table, my pitcher in my hand, and I'm pouring them water. And I'm pouring them water. And they talk about how there's no good movies in theaters, and then I pour them water. And they're talking about another person's forthcoming vacation, and I pour them water. And when, at one point, I'm pouring water for a man at the far end of the table, the woman across from him lifts her empty glass toward me. She looks up at me and makes fleeting eye contact, but she doesn't say anything. Her eye contact is the command. It says fill my glass. And then she looks away, her glass held up high, and she continues the conversation she was having. I pour her some water, and when she feels that her glass is full, she brings it down to her lips, and she begins to drink, and she doesn't look at me again. And I walk away. And in walking away, I realize suddenly that in all of my rounds visiting the table, replenishing the water for these endlessly thirsty and well-to-do young professionals, not one of them has said thank you. Few of them have, have even bothered to make eye contact, and that's fine because I know some people are just uncomfortable to be served, but nobody said thank you. And I was surprised to find that I apparently really give a shit about that kind of thing because I went on to be livid about it for like three days. I would be in traffic, and I would see a Mercedes, and I would remember the thankless table of rich kids, and I would start squeezing my steering wheel. It, it would come to mind while I was lying in bed, and then suddenly I would have to switch positions and put music on. The following week, I was reading an article, and I saw the phrase, class resentment. And immediately, I remembered my encounter with that, that ten top. So, class resentment is what I think I was experiencing. Which is interesting, because what it suggests is that my income, my social status has somehow wiggled its way into my pores to become a factor in my identity. Or it's a factor at least of how I see myself. The fact that I wasn't just annoyed by this table's callousness, but fucking haunted by it, shows that. I might say that I live the creative life and that I don't mind having much money, that I don't mind the sacrifices I have to make in order to be doing this creative stuff, but maybe it matters to me a little more than I like to admit. Maybe I'm, I'm less thrilled about my social status than I put on. 
And maybe that's why I'm so hung up on that part of his speech where Ray Bradbury says that his wife took a vow of poverty in order to marry him. I'm not living in abject poverty. I'm not living in a shack. I'm not sharing towels with rats and, and roaches. I just live in a low-income area, and I drink cheap wine, and I eat a lot of ramen. But there's this crushing vibe whenever I'm going out on these first dates that the person I'm out with will piece together things about my financial situation that that, that image of my financial situation will end up eclipsing the qualities of my character, whatever those qualities may be. Just as with that party of 10 people, no amount of charisma or learning I might have demonstrated to them would have added a tint of color to my role, my status, my function in their eyes as the busboy. And it makes me think of that new guy at my restaurant, Greg, the career bartender, with all of his good humor and personality, his skills, his experience. Over the past few days, I've been thinking about that table and I think of him with his own with his, his aching back shaking up a cocktail at a crowded bar where none of the patrons notice what he's doing but seldom appreciated by people outside of his profession is that the ice itself is an ingredient that the splash of water in a glass of good scotch is the thing that brings it to life goes another episode. This is the first episode in, I think, two months. And the reason, for the most part, that there hasn't been a more consistent podcast since the end of 2019 is that beginning in, I think, the first week of December of 2019, I started writing a novel, and I finished it in the first week of March. So it's called Various Positions, and it's done, and I'm glad that it's done. I'm still editing it, but editing it is, and, I, and I, that takes a lot of time, but it's not the same kind of attention stealer of actually writing it because I think a, a lot of different writers have, have drawn different analogies but when you are writing when you're actively conjuring the story into existence it feels kind of like you've you've found some loose thread in like the bowel of your soul and so you've got to you've got to pull it very gently but you've got to pull it consistently in order to unravel the whole narrative but if you pull too hard you're going to break the string and if you pull too gently it's just going to stagnate some writers have referred to it as the tightrope um david foster wallace i think said that um writing a novel is like trying to carry a tall stack of plywood through a through a, a strong wind i don't know it just kind of follows you around even when you're not working on it and you're constantly brooding over it and you'll, you'll write five or six pages in a single sitting and then you spend two days wondering if those are just going to go directly into the scrap heap. It's been remarkable. Now, I think I'm like 30 pages into editing that first draft and um, there was like a four-page section of dense, dense prose that I remember taking a long time and I just... I just drew an X through all four pages very quickly. It, it's, it's this weird epiphany that you the sequence of epiphanies of wow that didn't matter that didn't matter so i'm working on that but so i like the rest of us am in quarantine because of the coronavirus pandemic for the past few years i've been saying to myself for the, i would say the three years that i've been working on thousand movie project i've been telling myself god wouldn't it be great if i just got three months with no sort of professional responsibilities and i could just spend three months working on thousand movie project full time i would get so much done i would watch probably like you know, 20% of the movies on the list. I would write a fuck ton of essays. I, I would be able to do a weekly podcast. And what's intimidating is that now, what, I mean, the the pandemic, the quarantine seems to have sort of manifested, like they just the, the universe is giving me exactly what I've been requesting for the past three years. And so it's like, now I have to step up to the plate and I have to prove that I wasn't full of shit. Um, 
So we are now at the beginning of our second month of quarantine, and in the first month I've watched, I think, 40 movies off of the list. So, for a, you know, a dent of 4% is not is not anything to shake a stick at. Mostly I've been exploring the 1970s. Um, there are a few movies from the 60s that I couldn't find back when I was watching movies from the 60s, so I've had to dip back. Um, and I had to, there were a couple of movies from the 50s that I just, I didn't write the essay. So like I had to rewatch The Unvanquished and um, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. But I have to say, like, the 1970s is up there, I think, now with the 1930s as the best decade of American movies. While I'm watching movies from the 1970s, I've been writing about the ones from the 1950s. And writing about the movies from the 50s, I'm realizing that I agree with Quentin Tarantino in a remark that he made on the Brady Sinellis podcast where he was saying that the 1950s and the 1980s are the worst decades for American cinema. Just the most fucking boring and repetitive. Everything in the 1950s is about sort of paranoia and insurgency. The paranoia stems from both the Red Scare and, you know, just the idea that we're going to be invaded by communists or something, but also McCarthyism. Senator Joseph McCarthy was just haphazardly accusing Americans of being communists and destroying their lives. So th those, mo those thematic motifs are coming up again and again. But what you also see in movies from the 1950s, and this is interesting only really in like a meta-textual way, like a meta-cinema, I don't know what you would say, what do you call it? In the 1950s is when televisions started showing up in everybody's household. Suddenly they were, you know, as affordable and commonplace an appliance as a refrigerator or washer and dryer. And so people stopped going out to the movies by and large, or they just, they weren't going out as often. So Hollywood's way of trying to redeem themselves in the face of this TV competition was they were like, okay, we're going to make fucking spectacles. So there are all these movies on the list, American movies from the 1950s that are fucking three hours, three hours and 40 minutes. So every major Hollywood movie of the 1950s just feels like this fucking flex. Like, look how much money we've put on this screen. I don't know, it's just tiresome. And now, Tarantino in that podcast equated the 1950s with the 1980s. I'm not in the 1980s yet, but he's proven pretty spot on in his appraisal of how tedious the 1950s were, so I'm kind of dreading what's ahead of me in the next decade. But the 1970s have been fucking incredible, and there could not be a better decade um, in which I could be mired throughout the uh, quarantine. So if I could make some recommendations as to some movies I think you would really dig during quarantine, um, Shaft is one of them, which is just so distinctly 70s, like, without even having ever seen it before, I've just always made jokes about Shaft, but it is fucking incredible. I'm discovering and really loving the, the movies of Bernardo Bertolucci, in particular Last Tango in Paris, and, um, the fuck is the other one? Uh, The Conformist. I just watched for the first time Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and that, of course, is very, very good. There's an Australian movie called Walkabout, which is pretty grisly, but well worth your time. Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show looks boring as fuck when you sort of start it up or if you look at the posters, you read synopses, but it is absolutely incredible. Cries and Whispers by Igmar Bergman is probably the most grueling movie I've ever seen in my life. It was incredible, it was absolutely gorgeous, and it was really compelling and like thematically gripping, but it was just so painful. But not, not the one, I, I've been telling people it's one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen, but not because it's like graphic depictions. Of anything, it's not blood or sexual violence, although there is a touch of both of those things. It's just, it's so intensely conf con confrontational with themes of, like, death and cancer and illness. So, I, that's, it's strongly recommended, but only if you've got a stomach for that kind of thing. The Exorcist, of course, I just watched that with my roommate. I, I, I've seen it a number of times, but my roommate had never seen it before, and it was it was really cool to see someone someone's reaction, an adult's reaction, to this 50-year-old movie. You know, seeing it for the first time, it still holds up. And yeah, I still have, I think, geez, probably like 60 or 70 more movies from the 1970s to go, but it is 
It's wonderful. It's bliss. But so I'm watching all those movies. I'm writing a lot of stuff for the website. And now I'm back, I think, to working regularly on the podcast. Another thing I wanted to mention is that in this episode, there is a quote of the week. And the quote of the week comes from Don Winslow's new book of short stories called Broken. And the quote, I don't know why. I was drunk when I recorded that. And I, I don't know why I elaborated on the quote. The quote is just, never chase bad money with good money and yet i elaborated it into some fucking paragraph and then i only attached the part of the quote that's at the very end which is you never get it back something like that i don't know why i did that thought i should clear it up in the uh in the epilogue otherwise there isn't a whole lot going on one of the things that's really compelling me to get back into the podcast is i'm reading the third volume of simon callow's incredible bio four volume biography of orson wells and reading about how euphoric wells was whenever he was in the editing room with something that he had filmed or recorded reminded me of how euphoric i become whenever i'm recording something that i think went over well and so i recorded these two monologues that i wrote weeks ago and yeah i had a nice time i hope you thought this was worthwhile i anticipated that things would be a little bit rusty when i got back into it and now listening through this episode i do think it's a little bit rusty but i am kind of pleased with the final product and hopefully i'll have something else to be slightly pleased about next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.